0: I was very interested in biology, which started me birds and bird behavior. So lucky to travel to the Arctic to study uh, nomadic birds. So I studied bird behavior, became very interested in environmental concerns. So I pursued that through biology. Biologists and ecologists are very good at observing the environment Understanding ecosystem complexity and problems, what I saw, however, is that engineers are swift finding solutions and implementing solutions as a result of that observation, I switched from biology, which focused on complexity and understanding the natural world, to engineering
1: towards finding solutions, okay.
2: in the Department of Earth Sciences and uh, School of the Environment at University of Toronto. We're going to talk about uh, chemical contaminants in the environment. So Miriam, thanks for coming.
0: Richard, thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Oh, no problem, yeah. Well, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into this field? And uh, you know, then we'll talk about your current research.
0: Sure, well, I've always been interested in the environment. I have taken a circuitous route, however. I was very interested in biology which started me birds and bird behavior. So lucky to travel to the Arctic to study uh, nomadic birds. So I studied bird behavior, became very interested in environmental concerns. So I pursued that through biology. Biologists and ecologists are very good at observing the environment understanding ecosystem complexity and problems when i saw however he said engineers are swift finding solutions and implementing solutions as a result of that observation i switched from biology which focused on complexity and understanding the natural world to engineering towards finding solutions
2: okay interesting what's your current research about right now
0: I look at chemical contaminants. I'm interested in contaminants that are in all of us, that are in every creature that's alive all around the world. I look at particular sets of contaminants like flame retardants, plasticizers, forever chemicals. And I'm interested in discovering their sources, how they move through the environment, how they get into animals, how they get into us. And then I leave it for the health people to figure out the health effects. I'm also very interested in chemicals management.
2: Well, I guess, I don't know, I guess one problem is there's hundreds of thousands of different chemicals that, I mean, maybe a a few of them have been looked at and characterized for the health effects, but the combination of them and again, the prevalence of just so many different types. How does anyone get a handle on what's good, what's bad, what's affecting what?
0: Oh, that's a great question. What you've said is so true. We know a lot about so few chemicals. We tend to be looking under the lamppost for our keys. You know that story about the person searching for their lost keys under the lamppost because the lamppost is where the ground is illuminated. So it's really tricky to go beyond the lamppost. However, there's a lot that we can learn under the lamppost that has not been looked at or just on the edges of the the area that's illuminated, so our work has really been tracing the sources through to exposure, and there's so much to be learned about that. The research started, and my research started outside. People were fascinated by what was what chemicals were being discovered in the Arctic. That's really important because you would think that the Arctic is a pristine location, or at least you would have thought so decades ago. In fact, we were finding way too many chemical contaminants that had traveled there from industrialized, populated locations. But we had to figure out what the sources and transport pathways were, then armed with that information, how we could control the pollution sources. Also early on, we were looking at smokestacks, What I mean by that, because I mean it also figuratively, super high emitting industries or locations, but then we started realizing that chemical sources were everywhere, including inside our homes that were causing us to be exposed. So we moved our, we large transitioned our research from outdoors, actually
2: to indoors. Okay. So what indoor environments do you look at now? Like people's homes or but businesses, or... yeah.
0: I mean, people's homes. The other reason why I transitioned my research is because uh, several decades ago, well, maybe more than that, I became a mom, and becoming a parent really changes your outlook. Before you're a parent, you think, "Wow, what's going on?" Why am you know, there in that environment or with all sorts of other people, and then when you become a parent, you say, "Wow." What's happening with my kids? How are my kids are, are uh, how are my kids being exposed in the sandbox in which they're playing? Mm. Exposed by the toys that are going into their mouths.
2: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So what uh, are you doing uh like anthropological analyses like going to people's homes and sampling for contaminants or have you used your home as a test bed or like
0: oh we had, at least my and... home is a te- oh my home has been used many times as a okay. test bed absolutely and many researchers yes. have used their homes um yes i i could tell you some of the
2: chemical profiles in my house you uh, found that that was interesting <laughs> to you or like horrifying
0: yeah well we found that my house which is really old, my house is so well over a hundred years old and yet we found chemicals uh that shouldn't have been here for example chemicals that were used in dielectric fluids and transformers and also in certain building materials those chemicals were just continued from use in the early 1970s Yep, yeah, they showed up in my house they weren't used when the house was constructed they weren't used after our house was renovated and yet they showed up in our house so that was puzzling. We well, possibly...
2: they, they from, Have you been able to identify that? No. Okay. <laughs>
0: but I know that they're in every house, unfortunately. They're in every house because the chemicals were used so ubiquitously that they're just smeared over the entire environment. So what our research has found is that chemicals used way in the past, if they're persistent, will continue to be here today. Our home environment's allow for chemicals to linger for decades after they have been used. Some research that we'll be publishing shortly, for example, shows that DDT, a pesticide that was banned decades ago, is still found in people's homes. The indoor environment serves that, chem- that chemical signature. It preserves the presence of those chemicals. Well, that's very disturbing because we use so many different chemicals in our homes.
2: Well, uh, see, so you found DDT, but did you find a lot of it, a little bit of it, or does it have such a low uh, threshold for sickness or death that, you know, any amount's terrible?
0: We found a range of levels at levels high enough that they could be of concern for infants or toddlers that, are, that would be exposed through dust, for example, on the floor.
2: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, what about the rooms of your home? Were there any rooms that uh, were more contaminated than others? Any surprises there? Um,
0: No surprises there, but I can report from the literature, for example, that if you happen to break a mercury thermometer, most of us don't have mercury thermometers, but if you do and you break it, mercury will last in that room for, and then will emanate throughout the home and again linger for a very, very long time. So chemicals don't stay in a particular room. They move from room to room and the, and the types of chemicals we look at, uh, such as forever chemicals, PFAS, uh, flame retardants, pesticides, they'll just, they don't stay put. They just keep moving.
2: Did you do like a body burden test on yourself or other occupants of your home and try to correlate that with the chemicals you see to see if there was a, you know, if you are seeing the same thing? or if it was different?
0: Yes, we have done uh, some work like that. For example, I found that wide-bodied Burton, one of the chemicals used in fragrances, shot way up after I lit a fragranced candle and I applied nail polish. Not sure which one of those was the source. The uh, spike in uh, concentrations was astonishing. Yeah, I would use that word, astonishing. We've also looked at a relationship between chemicals in people's phones, their hands, and their cell phones. So cell phones are really interesting. When was the last time you washed your cell
2: phone? Yeah, sometimes they get clean, but not too often.
0: Indeed. That's the case for most people. Not too often. So what you, what's happening then is that your hands touch a whole bunch of different things that pick up chemicals. Some chemicals that are not so good for you. You transfer them to your cell phone, which acts as a repository of those chemicals. So even after you wash your hands, you can reintroduce those chemicals to your hands after you can use your cell phone. Cell phones are a great archive of what you've been exposed to and also a terrific means of transferring chemicals even after you've washed your
2: hands. Okay. So I don't know any, I mean, what do people do about this? Now that you've characterized what's going on in your home, have you taken any actions to see if you could reduce certain chemicals in the house, you know, ventilate it more, wipe down the walls? You know, were, were there hot spots in your house that, that you took action to, uh, you know, to change the composition of the chemicals there, the, the amount?
0: So there are different actions that everyone can take. Yes, increasing ventilation reduces indoor air levels, but we do have to balance that with energy conservation. Many of us heat and cool our homes using fossil fuels. I don't want to be promoting actions that increase greenhouse gas emissions, which in turn contribute to climate change. So these are really tricky issues, but we do know that ventilation works. So for example, after you paint your house, use certain glues, use build particular uh, building materials. Yes. Please, or apply pesticides, yes, please do ventilate your house well. Ventilation does reduce chemical concentrations. Please do remove the dust. Wet mopping is the best thing to do. It does reduce chemical uh, contamination. Moreover, it reduces opportunities for little kids and pets also to be exposed. So those are practical things that you can do. Then there are bigger societal things that everyone can contribute to, and that is being politically active, looking for representatives who speak to environmental protection, that speak to sound chemicals management. I think that's really important. There are many organizations that work towards sound chemical management. I support those organizations and try to promote their their work. I myself have become very involved in chemical management activities. I've worked on chemicals management activities at the national scale, and now going international. So those are activities that I believe uh, contribute to and make a difference, not just for myself and my family, but for next generations. I really want to use my expertise to help with chemicals management so that everybody can live in a safer world.
2: What what does chemicals management mean? Does that mean for an individual?
0: What it means is looking at which chemicals should be removed from the marketplace, making sure that nasty or regrettable alternatives are not put onto the marketplace. It means ensuring that chemicals are and waste are managed soundly. For example, that persistent chemicals are not just put in landfills where they'll just go all over the place but rather that they have to be managed according to hazardous chemical handling procedures. Chemicals management means that we don't ship our waste from high-income to low-income countries. It happens like it's happening right now, today. So it means looking after what we do with our chemicals. It means being aware that we're offshoring production of many of our chemicals so that for example, other countries are bearing the burden of chemical contamination, whereas wealthy countries don't. So there's so many different aspects to chemicals management that we need to be aware of and work towards.
2: are there any particular scientific questions that you're looking at in terms of specific chemicals, or you're looking for, Are you doing like more a holistic, overall approach?
0: We're looking right now at PFAS, which stands P F A S, that stands for per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Many people will know those substances through their use of Teflon, Gore-Tex, water and stain repellent products. These have been termed the forever chemicals. We're really concerned because their use is proliferating in so many different applications that are unnecessary. That's regrettable. It's regrettable because these chemicals don't go away it'll t- we, d- we don't even know how long these chemicals are going to last they're really difficult to remove from drinking water. The point is we shouldn't we, we need to dramatically reduce our use of these chemicals because we can't get rid of them, and it's really hard to treat our drinking water to remove them. Some of our studies have shown that these chemicals are prevalent in certain cosmetics cosmetics that are marketed for being long-lasting for being put it on now and let it last for 24 hours it's really resistant to water so this is not where we should be using incredibly long-lasting chemicals we don't need these chemicals in cosmetics we've also completed a study on the use of these chemicals in kids products these forever chemicals are used in everything from school uniforms, to some kids' swimwear. So they should not be used in these products. Again, these the use of these chemicals in such products offers an excellent opportunity for kids' exposure to these forever chemicals. And the use of these chemicals in today's products will contaminate the drinking water of the next generations. So we're working hard on reducing the use of these chemicals in products where they're not needed.
2: Okay. So what's, um, I don't know, are there any big initiatives right now that are going to make changes in the chemicals that we're exposed to? Or is it incremental or is it kind of whack-a-mole where, you yeah, you work on one and then a hundred others spring up to be a problem after that? What's the landscape that would look like?
0: It's all of the above. Definitely whack-a-mole. So we remove one chemical and guess what? Another one comes up and it's used because we just don't know very much about it because it's flown under the regulatory radar. It's used because it was just, yes, we just don't know enough about it yet. So that's the whack-a-mole picture. There's work going on in national and international arenas on chemicals management. At the end of January, I'll be flying to Bangkok to participate in the first face-to-face meeting from the United Nations Environment Program of a new science policy panel that is being established to deal with chemicals, waste, and pollution. So this is a really exciting initiative. Many of your listeners have probably heard of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And a similar intergovernmental panel panel on biodiversity. These are large international intergovernmental panels that provide authoritative statements on the state of the science with regard to climate change and loss of biodiversity. These panels provide guidance to governments on what solutions should be undertaken. Now, a new panel is being established for chemicals, waste, and pollution, that will hopefully fulfill the same role, providing these authoritative overviews of emerging and prioritized issues. Those statements are intended to guide governments on what should be dealt with first, what do we need to take action on, and what type of actions are going to be most effective.
2: Okay. Are you you involved in any of these panels, or are you just aware of them? Yeah. So
0: as I said, I'm flying to Bangkok uh, to take part as an observer in discussions on setting up this panel. I'm also involved as a member of the Scientific and Technical Advisory Panel of the Global Environment Facility. The Global Environment Facility is a fund run under the World Bank that is tasked with helping developing countries meet obligations under, for example, the Climate Change Convention, the Biodiversity Convention, uh, the Montreal Protocol, uh, the Minimata Convention on Mercury. So I'm involved in that panel and it provides the opportunity to bring the best science and advice so that money can be most effectively directed
2: to addressing those really serious problems in developing countries. Okay. Well, very good, Miriam. Uh, Where is the best place for people to find out more about your work and keep tabs on?
0: Oh, that's a great question. It should be my website, which hasn't been updated uh, recently, but that gives me more incentive to update my website. You know, it's hard to keep on top of the science and your website at the same time. I'm smiling. Okay.
2: Oh, no, no, know from many other places for people to find out more. Or really, that's the one best place.
0: Well, they can find out a global environment facility from that website, which is www.gaf, standing for Global Environment Facility. They can find out about this new emerging science policy panel by going to the United Nations Environment Program website, which will be which is hosting information as this, policy, as this panel develops. It also uh UNAP, United Nations Environment Panel website, is also providing information on negotiations on the new emerging plastics treaty, which is another great, exciting initiative being taken to try to address the unrelenting increase in plastics production and plastics pollution. So there are a whole bunch of different websites that can be consulted for all for. There's such a diversity of initiatives going on. It's just a matter of figuring out which one you want to become involved
2: with. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Richie, thank you so much for inviting me. I think I just, I want to leave by saying that looking at the issue of chemical contamination, climate change, We have so many daunting issues that confront us. What's important is that each one of us takes some steps to be involved, not to be overwhelmed by the enormity of the issues, but to know that each one of us can take some step that's important, and that moves us closer to making the world a better place. I always end by being hopeful, not just a passive hope, but a very active hope, a hope to do something to change the world to make the better a better place for everybody an equitable place a place that next generations
2: will thrive in excellent well very good thank you again then i appreciate your final statement you're so very welcome
1: if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes